to create. Um, right. And I think right. that any system that is built on tiers, that is built on differential levels of access, um, or that's built on leaving holes or gaps in coverage um, just to give the sort of private insurance companies something to do, is going to is, is going to con- contribute to health inequality. It's going to contribute to economic inequality. Totally. Yes. Um, very special episode as part of our series Medicare for All Week. Please welcome our guest, the legendary Dr. Adam Gaffney, president of Physicians for a National Health Program, uh, pulmonary and critical care specialist at Cambridge Health Alliance and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Gaffney, thank you so much for joining us. Now, it's very kind of you to have me. Um, so yeah, today it's uh, Artie and I. And uh, do you prefer Dr. Gaffney or is Adam good? I no, always like to ask Adam doctors. Is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we're excited to have you here. Medicare for All Week is uh, a new thing for us, a, a mini series. A special I guess. event. I yeah, suppose. it's a special like Shark Week, but for healthcare. Right. Yeah. So we're really we're really excited uh, to have you here. One because I think you are one of my favorite voices from the provider and on this issue. Um, but I also thought it could be good because this is sort of our inaugural episode of this series. We could sort of tee everyone off and give them a really good sort of overview from your perspective and the work that you've been doing about sort of where we're at, what we need to do, and where we're going with Medicare for all. <laughs> no, no, we have, we have a big agenda. Yeah, it's very broad. So now that I've just laid out like an insurmountable task and we could probably <laughs> spend six hours talking about this, right. we should dive right in, right? So recently you're the co-author of a, a number of great studies on this. And recently we were talking about what, uh, the study you just did about the VA. So I'd love to get into talking about some of the work that you've done uh, sort of in, on the more research side later in our talk. But before that, do you mind giving the listeners sort of a background on what uh, if they don't know what PNHP is? Absolutely. Sure. So maybe. Yeah. And I think a good place to start is a little bit of a historical kind of overview um, mm. and where we came from a little bit. And um, and the role that I think PNHP played in helping to put national health insurance back on the agenda. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, everyone knows this is not a new struggle and that the fight for a national health program is old. You know, depending upon who you ask, it either begins in the 1910s when there was more of a state-level um, campaign to get what used to be called compulsory health insurance mm-hmm. on the books in, in various states. And, and I, I usually think of um, the first national-level kind of campaign as being the 1940s mm-hmm. when, you know, after World War II ends and kind of the New Deal agenda is still what people are talking about, um, healthcare reform was kind of the un- you know, it was the part of the New Deal that um, that never happened. And um, and Truman did embrace it. It actually helped him get elected. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a lot of support from labor. Um, and, you know, and this is going to tie into I, the role PNHP plays because at that time, um, really the principal opposition for against um, national health insurance was the American Medical Association. Right. right? Absolutely. They, yes. <laughs> you know, they, they really sunk it. They put tons of money into um, a lobbying campaign, engaged in a lot of red baiting, um, you know, employed this famous, um, or I guess now famous public relations firm out in California mm-hmm. and so forth. And it, and it obviously, um, it obviously was defeated. Uh the next, the last time that medic that national health insurance has been as prominent as it is today was probably the 1970s when you know in the wake of medicare and medicare being passed and being implemented in the mid 1960s and a lot of progressive activism and a lot of you know labor insurgency and and a lot of just sort of um progressive political ideas mm-hmm. floating around in general, um, it was really in the early 1970s, this was sort of like today. This was on the national agenda. There was a bill, you know, that um, Ted Kennedy um, introduced in 1970 that yeah. is basically Medicare for all, right? It's very similar. National health insurance, no cost sharing, no copays. Uh, it was embraced by labor. Um, and, you know, his bill was met with a sort of 
hybrid plan from Nixon and neither were implemented. <laughs> and then, of course, Ronald Reagan got elected eventually and the whole country, you know, went in the wrong direction. So, right. uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's almost like we have like a huge responsibility on our shoulders to not mess up this time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and, and without talking for too long, um, this, you know, I, I am going to answer your question specifically because and the reason why I kind of set it up this way is because um, I, I think like, you know, where my organization came from was was out of the wake of that defeat. Right. So, mm. right. you know, national health insurance was huge in the 1970s. Everyone thought it was going to happen. It was just a question of who's, you know, which version, how progressive would it be? Um, and then with the neoliberal turn and with the the, the the election of Reagan, it totally fell off the agenda. Um, and mm -hmm. it seemed like it was, you know, not even something you could talk about. It was so far out there uh, in the 1980s. And so PDHP was formed in the late 1980s when I was a tiny child. Um, <laughs> and so, so I, I have no firsthand um, knowledge or contribution here, to be clear. You know, basically, the idea uh, was that it was time to, to to put this back on the agenda again. That not that anyone thought it was going to be passed, and you know, in, in, in that time, but that it was time to start a new chapter in the struggle uh, for national health insurance. Yeah. yeah, and so they published a proposal um, in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1989, um, describing Medicare for all. Um, after many years of advocacy and and pushing for this, it got um, that proposal basically was put into bill form in 2003 um, with the lead uh, co-sponsor being uh, John Conyers. Um, and that was the Medicare for All Act. That's what it was called. That's kind of the time, the time when that term came around. And here we are today, you know, 15 years later, um, advocacy by a lot of groups, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm not centering PNHP. I'm just just because you asked about right. it. I'm, I'm talking about its roots. Um, advocacy by lots of groups, by um, obviously the you know one of the, the biggest movers being NNU, mm -hmm. um, and sort of you know the 2016 campaign of Bernie Sanders and other factors has once again sort of thrust this issue into the center of our national political discussion. So that's an extraordinarily long-winded answer to your very simple question. <laughs> I don't know. That was pretty comprehensive, I'd I, say. I also appreciate that you sort of grounded it in some of the very early history of the fight as well, especially because considering um, you mentioned really kind of offhand listeners, I would encourage you to Google the PR firm Whitaker and Baxter. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> this which, is one of Artie's favorite uh, deep dives. Yes. Gotcha. Um, which uh, did, you know, did a lot of AMA, uh, like, sorry, uh, ad advertising for... Uh, against socialized medicine on behalf of the AMA. And so as a result, I sort of see PNHP as this uh, sort of not bizarro uh, <laughs> uh, AMA, because I guess the bizarro one is like the bad guys, but um, you know, the the sort of like in the foil. Yes, to... exactly. Well, and they also then uh, were involved in getting Nixon elected, right? Or no, his first failed campaign. Yeah, so well, they were involved in the fight against <laughs> Medicare too. That was, yes. that was where Ronald Reagan cut right. his teeth. Uh, with that famous LP he recorded, um, where he talks about <laughs> if Medicare is, you know, implemented. Well, there's a hysterical line, but it's something like, "We'll all think back towards the time in which this was, you know, we were, we we lived free." Right. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's very dramatic and, and quite funny in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, with that in mind, sort of mm -hmm. zooming to now, in addition to being president of PNHP, you're also a physician as well, and currently you're at Harvard right now and at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So I, I, I wear a few hats uh, in addition to the advocacy work for single payer, which I've been doing since res medical residency. Um, I I do work, uh, do clinical work. I actually somewhat atypically for um, a single payer advocate, because I feel like a lot of us are primary care physicians. Mm. I, I'm mm -hmm. actually working in an intensive care unit. Uh, so I, 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 I take care of you know, very sick patients. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's the other hat I wear. And then I, you know, I'm at the medical school. So I do um, I teach residents and um, and then do research that you referred to um, earlier as well, focusing on health access, health equity um, and national health insurance design and as well. So what are you seeing uh, on the ground right now in your ICU? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where if you don't really ask patients, you <laughs> it's very easy in the ICU particularly to not realize like the ways in which the healthcare system really, um, really 
adversely affects patients and hurts yeah. them. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yes, I mean, you know, it's 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 not as obvious because many of our patients are often sick and often are on life support and can't actually give you, um, you know, history or can't actually tell you about their social totally. situation. But when when they can, um, you do hear stories about people, for instance, um, having lapses in coverage, not being seen, not seeing doctors for a long time and having chronic, you know, problems that are very treatable, things like high blood pressure, something as basic mm-hmm. as that, going untreated for years and years and then culminating in um, catastrophe or emergency, you know, hypertensive emergencies and, and that sort of thing. Certainly, you you know, if you talk to um, uh, anyone, I think they'll have stories about uh, people for various reasons going without insulin because of lapses in coverage, because of copays, because of deductibles, and winding up with a condition called diabetic ketoacidosis, um, which is, uh, you mm-hmm. know, as, as you're probably familiar, is a life-threatening complication uh, among people um, who are insulin-dependent. So, um, you know, those are some of the things that we see. Um, but so much of what happens is not directly observable. You know, there's people who never right. actually show up to healthcare to begin with, you know, and, right. um, there's, um, and there's also, um, you know, across the country, we know that people are, are obviously being stuck with giant bills being chased down, um, by collections agencies. There's been a slew of recent stories about folks being sued, um, by hospitals for unpaid bills and, mm-hmm. the, you know, things you're familiar with. So it, it's happening at every level. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one of the things whenever uh, I'm uh, in the emergency room or inpatient, I always try and talk to everyone about their job conditions uh-huh. and how the inability to treat patients really contributes to burnout um, from the provider side as well. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, when I first started getting involved in this type of work, Many years ago, doctors were not super willing to talk about this. Uh, mm-hmm. They would totally go into the like, yes, ERs are overused. And that's because people uh, don't have access to primary care. But mm-hmm. they would sort of stop there. Yeah. Right. Is that I, I mean, now I think we've certainly come a long way from like maybe this was like four or five years ago. But do you feel like uh, as a whole, you know, our providers uh, ready for this? I think it would be great for them from my end, but I'm not a doctor, you mm-hmm. know? Well, I think I think this is, a, a you know, a really key issue that doesn't get enough attention. And I think it will in the coming weeks. Um, and it, 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 you know, it's it's the reason why I kind of wanted to start by talking a little bit about the 1940s and about how mm-hmm. um, the AMA played such a key role in, you know, um, defeating that effort. Because I really think, first of all, um, that. Yes, physicians are more aware of the ways in which our financing system is every day adversely affecting their patients. I think there's a lot more cognizance about um, the role that co-pays, deductibles, uninsurance are playing in keeping people from from getting health care on, on the one hand. Um, but I think the other way in which things have changed is in the working conditions of physicians. There's mm-hmm. been a dramatic change since the late 1940s. I mean, don't forget, back then, um, physicians were effectively, um, you know, for the most part, all sort of small businessmen, mostly right. businessmen, right. some, you know, very few businesswomen. <laughs> um, and, um, and so, you know, their fear was in large part about losing autonomy and that you've seen Mm -hmm. that in other countries. Um, But I think that physicians don't feel like they have autonomy anymore. Right. So um, a majority are now employed uh, by, you know, organizations, many by for profit organizations. Um, you know, United Healthcare itself has become a major employer of physicians directly. They have tens of thousands of doctors that they employ. Um, And the sort of ever onward growth of this sort of administrative and billing apparatus and industry um, mm-hmm. is sort of taking physicians away from the bedside and, t- and, and, and towards the electronic medical record and towards billing activities. Um, and they're not happy. We're not happy about that either. Um, so I think there is really a shift going on right now, uh, both in terms of the awareness of physicians about the harm of the financing system for their patients, but also an increasing awareness of the ways in which this system is actually not working well for them. And um, so for those reasons, I think there's a really historic uh, potential opening for um, for us to see physicians getting on board with Medicare for all in a way that wasn't the case back in the 1940s. Uh, and that's exciting. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you see it between hospital consolidation and um, the pressure that m- a lot of practitioners feel to leave private practice and join either like a university practice or like a medical group because it's just like absolutely impossible to 
basically afford to do your own billing now Mm -hmm. Um, between the time it takes or the companies that take like 40% off the top. Like I've talked to a lot of providers who say they feel like they lost their autonomy in like 2007 and, Mm -hmm. you know, want it back. So I do think we're in a kind of unique moment right now. So you've done a lot of fantastic appearances uh, on TV and written a lot of great op-eds sort of systematically debunking and attacking uh, a lot of these claims of like, providers being unsatisfied because of uh, lower payments. So can we talk about like actual the logical fallacy of the argument that physicians don't want this because they won't make enough money? We can. I mean, I think, first of all, I think that argument that, you know, Medicare for all is going to be terrible for hospitals. They're going to go bankrupt (laughs) or it's going to be horrible for physicians. And then, you know, no one's going to want to be a doctor is simply untrue. You know, Um, we first, First of all, there's definitely savings that we can, um, there's definitely potential savings in terms of um, the, you know, the amount that hospitals and physicians are taking in and then that are spending on billing and coding mm-hmm. and administration. There's big savings that can happen there. I mean, just to give an obvious example, hospitals now spend um, about 25% of their revenue of their, you know, all the money they take in mm-hmm. on administration and billing. Um, you know, one, and that's twice the proportion of Canadian hospitals. That's wild. Um, which is crazy. Uh, Duke, one economist likes to point out that Duke University Medical Center has 1,300 billing clerks that it employs. Oh, my God. 900 oh my God. hospital beds. So they actually wow. have more billers wow. and beds, which is pretty crazy if you think about it's it. It's absurd. Yeah. It's crazy. And uh, physicians' offices also are employing, I mean, physicians are spending time interacting with insurance companies, but even more of a problem is that they're hiring lots of people to, to do that work as well. Um, and, um, you know, one estimate uh, find um, basically was that physician, we spend as a nation about $80,000 per physician to cover the costs of their interactions with insurance companies, whether in terms of time or money. And that's fourfold higher than Canada. So I mean, that's that's more than most nonprofit workers make in a year. Exactly. So there are, there are big savings that we can accrue right. by transitioning to a single payer. So it seems like a very efficient system. Uh-huh. <laughs> totally. <Yes>. Totally. <laughs> it's definitely um, working. It's working for some somebody. <laughs> right, definitely. Just not now, doctors, not patients, and not nurses, that's for uh, sure. Certainly not, certainly not. So, you know, I think we can transition to a single-payer system where nurses, you know, do just as well, doctors do well, maybe some sort of, you know, attenuation in the extremes where hospitals um, can downsize their administration but are not going under. I mean, it's just the economics of this are, are the argument that this is going to be bad for all healthcare workers and all healthcare providers is 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 just designed to undercut support and it's not true. Yeah, I feel like there are a couple different com- like conflicting numbers on this, but most estimates of like uh, average hospital spending on doctor salaries doesn't usually go over 10% of their yes. admin spending from what I remember. Yeah, so it do- it doesn't seem to me like a necessary component. It's a very sort of um straw man false issue. Yes. But you have this history of the AMA sort of speaking for the profession as a whole, not always having the same uh, views, let's say, as the actual constituency that they purport to represent. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's probably even more true today than ever. I mean, the AMA um, no longer represents, you know, really the mainstream of the medical profession. And you saw this last year. I don't know if you followed the story. Um, the AMA... Mm-hmm. Did join this dark money lobbying group, um, the yeah, partnership partnership. Group. Yep. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, and yeah, I'm sure you've spoken about them before. And so they're really Couple led times. by the insurance comp- <laughs> the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. But the AMA did join also, uh, which is you know a really bad luck. Um, and <laughs> yeah. um, there was a lot of pressure. Uh, there was pressure from within. There was an activist campaign from outside the AMA. Our student members and PNHP actually took the lead role on this. Um, they, um, within the hall, within the Dele- House of Delegates in the AMA National Convention last year in Chicago, they introduced a resolution to end the AMA's opposition to Medicare for All. And that was amazingly 
only very narrowly defeated. It was defeated, but very narrow, narrow. Right. Um, and then outside, there was a big protest. I was there. A lot of people were there. Um, and, um, you know, not too long after, and we don't know exactly what happened inside, but not too long after uh, the AMA withdrew its um, uh, membership <laughs> of the partnership, which is, you know, a victory. Um, and oh, yeah. I, that speaks to, I think, the fact that the broader physician community was not happy with it taking taking this position. Um, and, you know, it's a much more diverse profession than it once was. Um, and uh, it's it, 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 the, the political positions they may no longer represent the, 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 the profession as a whole. Right. Exactly. And I mean, doctors don't really tend to um, get into medicine for the money, in my experience, even though that seems to be a pretty common misconception from people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and um, and get into a little bit of why Medicare for All or a single payer system is sort of our only option at this point. You talk a lot about how other the sort of other blanket systems or ones that allow redundancy or like, you know, Medigap insurance or duplicate coverage really just are incapable of creating the like sort of economic justice uh, change that needs to happen in mm-hmm. order for this system to start working better for everyone. So why is a 10 year glide path transition plan not going to work? <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, there's, there's political reasons and there's policy reasons. Um, I think there's a few ways to look at this. One is, you know, what is the healthcare system that we want to create? Um, right. And I think right. that any system that is built on tiers, that is built on differential levels of access, um, or that's built on leaving holes or gaps in coverage um, just to give the sort of private insurance companies something to do, is going to is is going to con- contribute to health inequality. It's going to contribute to economic inequality. Totally. Yes. Um, Hell yeah. And so. <laughs> I mean, so I always say this, you know, when people are like, why can't we sort of have a significant role for private insurance and sort of, you know, you know, make this a little easier? Um, and I think there's, there's, a, there's a few there's a few ways to answer that. I mean, one, what role would private insurance have under single payer? So and people sometimes break this down into sort of three types of private insurance within a universal system. So the first type is something that people refer to as duplicative insurance. And so Mm -hmm. that would be if you could take out private insurance um, that would duplicate the benefits of Medicare overall, um, and it would give you sort of, you know, allow you to cut the line and kind of get, you know, better access to doctors or hospitals to Mm -hmm. kind of not, you know, have to wait as long. Um, And duplicative insurance really undercuts equity. And when you see this in Australia, there was an article today in Vox about the Australian healthcare system and the ways in which, you know, the privately insured are sort of able to cut the line. Um, And it's not just that, you know, they have it a little better. It's that there's a little bit of a zero-sum game because there's only a finite number of facilities and providers. um, And so ultimately you shift resources from the public to the private sector and create a really two-tier system. So I think duplicative insurance is bad for that reason. It's also bad because once you start taking this sort of wealthy um, out of the public system, they are not going to be invested in its in its quality. They're not going to be invested in its fi- right. financing. And you almost will invariably have under financing of the public system, austerity of this public system. Um, and you won't have, you know, powerful people ready to push for, um, you know, um, more resources if there is a waiting list, if there is a wait time. Right. For whatever. Right. So uh, for that reason, I think duplicative insurance undercuts both the um financial stability of, of, of the, of a public health insurance system, but also it's equity um, and it's quality. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, one of the things I always think about is like, well, uh, why create an opportunity to reduce funding by having other things that could step in, you know, mm-hmm. like if we, if we have like duplicate, uh, coverage in any capacity, then you could easily justify, oh, okay, we're going to uh, symbolically reduce the deficit by cutting like dental and vision because the private market exists to do that. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. And I think that's a, so, so, and I would put that in the second category. That would be like the sort of so called um, complementary insurance, right? So that's what people refer right. to when they're, as you said, well, why don't we just, you know, cut out dental or cut out, um, <laughs> right. you know, long term care or cut out, um, 
um, whatever, you know, pulmonary medicine. Let and the make free that market handle that, that it. Be, <laughs> let the free market handle that. And, you know, what, what what's the purpose of, of reducing benefits at random just to give the private insurance company something to do? I mean, right. um, I mean, that's the point. That's the point. It just is the to point. give the private insurance yeah. company right. something to do. And then that's the downside of that is, yeah. So you can always imagine some things that are not going to be covered by the, the public system, you know, is, is, is cosmetic surgery, you know, in Canada, you can get, insur- you can get private coverage for, um, uh, having a private hospital room instead of a semi-private hospital room. And you can talk about that. There's always going to be a little bit of ro- room for that. But the idea of taking significant benefits out of Medicare for all just to give the private insurance companies something to do um, is basically, again, undercutting its quality and comprehensiveness. And so that should be avoided. And the final type of private insurance under a universal public system is so-called um supplementary insurance. And that's just insurance plans that that cover co-pays and deductibles. So like under Medicare, for instance, today, as you mentioned, um, there is co-pays and deductibles. So people then need to take out private Medigap plans to plug those holes. Yes. But again, what, what, why should we cut holes in the, you know, make the, the, the public system worse just so that people <laughs> then have to go out and buy a second plan to cover the, to, to, to fill in those gaps. Right. I mean, and speaking as a patient sense, on so. Medicare who has a Medigap plan, who somehow <laughs> still has not sent me my card, even though I enrolled in June, um, all of my Medigap plan seems to do is just create more billing paperwork and a longer approval process for uh, everyone in NYU who's trying to coordinate my care. Before the Medigap went in force, approvals took 24 hours and it was like fantastically amazing because I was used to fighting Aetna for weeks and months and like feeling terrible about asking my doctors, can you write this letter? We got to write the letter again. Do you mind signing this? You know, it, it takes up so much of their time. And the supplemental insurance is just like uh, the the weirdest, most useless, but like very important thing for someone who's on two biologics. You know, well, that absolutely. part B copay is way more than I could afford. Right. Of course. I mean, it's it's terrible. Um, I hear from patients with, you know, emphysema. I mean, I'm a lung doctor, um, seniors on Medicare who can't afford mm-hmm. their inhaler. Right. And they're sort of skipping dosages or t- taking it ha- every other day. And um, and it doesn't make any sense. And the idea that we should, the idea that, you know, people are like, well, why don't you, you know, the idea that we should embrace that and embrace co-pays and deductibles so that the insurance can fill those gaps, like it doesn't make any sense. So right. I don't see a significant role for private insurance in a really just healthcare system. Um, and to the extent that this private insurance exists in countries with good healthcare systems, it's plays a very marginal role. Right. Or it plays a really destructive one, like in South Africa. Right. Or Australia. They have like a totally two-tiered medical apartheid, rich people in this store, everyone else, public plan. Yep. You know. That's, and yep. We, okay, so we basically, I'm really glad to hear that we agree that Medicare for All is sort of our only option right now. Um, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what this week is about, but, uh, one of the things that I, I really appreciate hearing you talk about is sometimes like how, how the NHS did it right, right. In terms of rollout implementation, labor issues for practitioners, you know, let's talk a little bit about how Medicare for all is economic justice, not just for patients, but for doctors in terms of like, this is actually potentially an opportunity for us to not only hire more nurses and doctors, but also maybe increase the pay for some people who are maybe working at mm-hmm. public hospitals versus fancy university hospitals. Or potentially as home health aides, for or instance. Home, yeah. Right, exactly. Well, that in terms of long, long-term care and home health aides, it would be revolutionary. I would certainly hope they would do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. No, I, that's a great point. I mean, I think um, to take the last point first, um, healthcare workers who are underpaid, I mean, uh, there are many healthcare workers who are well-paid, um, but there are many... <laughs> Um, as you mentioned, like home health workers that are really exploited. Um, and it's a predominantly female and it's a predominantly um, person of color workforce that we're speaking about that are getting paid, you know, really mi- minimum wage or, or close to it oftentimes. So so there's a lot we need to do as we transition to to, to, to Medicare for all um, that could, um, that, 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 that matters. And, and that's an important thing. And, and that's why I think, you know, 
when people talk about the savings under single payer, there definitely are big savings, but there's also new costs. And so, you know, the, the reality is at the end of the day, I think at least up front, a lot of the savings are going to uh, be met with new costs, you know, um, and they're probably going to either be about even or maybe this or maybe some sort of relatively modest savings. Um, and that's OK. Mm -hmm. You know, um, no country that's implemented um, health, universal health care has suddenly seen a plummet in its spending on health care as a society. Uh, you may cut, make, make cuts, make savings, reduce waste. Um, at the same time, some people are going to get more care than they weren't already getting. And that's good. You know, um, some people who have been skipping their medications and skipping the doctor's visits and skipping even the emergency room are going to get that care. That will cost them more money. Um, and some people who are being exploited and are not getting paid enough, as you mentioned, um, should be paid more. And that will cost a little bit more money. So that's how I, I kind of view the economics. But the point is, is that whether we spend about the same on healthcare upfront or whether we spend somewhat less, the point is, is that by financing it publicly through progressive taxes, mm -hmm. you in and of itself, you alleviate societal inequality. Um, there will be an enormous shift um, in terms of the distribution of, of income and wealth beca because of Medicare for all. Because because right now the way we finance healthcare is obviously through some taxes, but there's a lot is basically a poll tax that it's the same <laughs> amount of money, yeah. you know, per person, for and premium. And then copays and deductibles are worse than poll taxes. Right. They're actually the most right. aggressive form of taxes because they fall the heaviest on the sick. They're actually more regressive than a flat. I don't know what the right term is because it's 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 a it's a tax that disp that that is not really you know it's not really flat. It's frankly regressive. Um, I, in, so, the, in the community of patients, we usually call it a sick tax or a cripple tax. Yep, a tax on illness, a tax yeah. on sickness. I've heard those yeah. terms, and those terms are are more. I've heard them more in the European context. People have you know pushed back against you know copays in the NHS system, for instance, and and and, and called a tax on sickness, and that's. Exactly what it is. It's a tax on sickness, um, and it's funny that we've come so far in this country, like acknowledging that charging higher premiums to people because they have cancer, let's say that that's unjust. A lot of people agree that like higher premiums for people with so-called pre-existing conditions is unjust, but we haven't recognized that doing that through copays and deductibles is effectively the same right. thing. Right. Um, and that should be seen as just as unjust. Absolutely. Right. I mean, one yeah. of the things that I, you know, everyone always says is, well, you know, Beatrice, your care is very expensive. So you've got to pay your copays because you need to know uh, the cost of your care so you can be a, a smart consumer <laughs> yes. who right. understands, you know, and doesn't overuse the system because, uh, you know, I just want to go and get recreational rituxin infusions for fun. You're the, uh, you're the waste of the, uh, waste, fraud, and abuse that Seema Verma always talks yes, about. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Artie. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's like, they're like, oh, you gotta, you gotta know that, uh, you gotta know that you're paying your way, you know, <laughs> demonstrate you're a productive sick person. Right. But at the end of the day, actually how I feel when I have to do that is that I am less valuable as a person. And it reminds mm -hmm. me of this conversation we had very early on in the podcast with Jamila Michener, who studies Medicaid and sort of the disastrous effects of bad Medicaid systems and disparities between states when people are forced to move and they have complex mm -hmm. medical conditions or yep. children with disabilities or elderly, uh, anyone basically. And, uh, you know, she said that in a lot of ways, austerity and administrative burdens and means testing and co-pays and all of this sort of consumer oriented personal responsibility dogma. All it does is it disenfranchises people and it tells them that they don't matter. I, I couldn't ag agree more. Um, and I think, you know, very fundamentally, um, cost sharing, co-pays and deductibles are a way to redistribute. And it's not thought of in this way often. Um, and, and this this is sort of in addition to what you're saying, not not in place of it, mm -hmm. which I absolutely agree with your point. It's actually a way to to redistribute wealth upwards. Um, right. If you have a system in which healthcare is financed at point of use by people who need based on how much they use, that means that people that that, that people are paying much more who are on average sicker and therefore lower income. And mm -hmm. so it's really, a, a, it has distributive impacts that are neglected. I think this rising understanding that cost sharing 
you know, causes people to go without needed care. Um, I think there's inadequate attention paid to the distributive impact of financing healthcare through cost sharing. That's a very fantastic point. Do you want to go into that a little bit more? Should we actually talk about uh, how high a burden sometimes cost sharing can be on patient medication compliance in the VA study? I think they they sort of connect, you know? Yeah, Um, Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, cost sharing is is a sort of very um interesting issue um you know we we we, you know we up at the top of the hour we spoke i spoke a little bit about the 1970s and how in 1970 you know um the kennedy introduced the medicare for all type bill um that had no cost sharing so that you know that that idea of healthcare free at point of use has really always been a core element of the left healthcare program. You know, it's what you had in the NHS. It's what you have in Canada, Canadian Medicare. Um, It actually goes all the way back to the Erfurt program um, of the social democratic party in Germany in in the 19th Mm. century, where they, where they, there's a line that, that calls for, um, you know, uh, free, I'm paraphrasing, but free medical care, including midwifery um, is the line. So it's interesting. (laughs) It's, you know, it's always been sort of um, uh, part of it. But, you know, there was this counter push that began really in the 1970s. Um, It began with, um, you know, certain economists uh, speaking about moral hazard and the economics (laughs) of moral Ah. hazard and how it imposed when you had free healthcare, their argument was, was that it sort of imposes a tax on society overall because people use healthcare that they don't really value. Um, and then it was further reinforced. <laughs> yep, this is, you know, that. It, it, I know it, I can't help but laugh. It's every like you time can't I make it that. up or something. You know. I know. It's it, like you couldn't imagine it or write it better. It, yeah. And and I think from a very strict, like microeconomic perspective that, you know, well, anyway, I, I, I wouldn't even get into details of it, but there's a guy named sure. Mark Pauly who, who wrote this famous, you know, incredibly widely cited article <laughs> called um, the economics of moral hazard. Um, yep. And, Classic. and then there was the Rand health insurance experiment um, that, you know, randomized families to free healthcare versus, <laughs> versus cost sharing and deductible plans. Um, and, you know, ever since then, a lot of these health policy establishment has taken it as a given that you need cost sharing, you know, that yeah. this is the only way you can ensure um, as a society that healthcare is not overly costly. Uh, in fact, in the, in, you know, Martin Feldstein uh, wrote an article where he basically, back in the 70s or 80s, where he basically made the point that Americans are overinsured. He used the word overinsured. That <laughs> um, that was the key problem of the American healthcare system. I'm not even yes, joking. Um, for sure, that's definitely it. <laughs> <laughs> so we went. So anyway, what? Why am I saying this? Well, yes. So then you fast forward 30 years, and we've also learned a lot of other things. Uh, although people knew it then too. Uh, we've learned that actually cost sharing causes people to neglect or not get needed healthcare, and mm-hmm. you know. That you see that in every illness. I mean, there was a study last year um, looking at high deductible healthcare plans and its effect on women with breast cancer, and found mm-hmm. that it caused them. It was a quasi-experimental study. It found that it led them to um, not get biopsies, be diagnosed, wow. or even to delay initiation of chemotherapy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, that is, you know, mind blowing. And there's been a whole bunch of other studies looking at people with other kinds of chronic illnesses, uh, diabetes, people forego needed care because of cost sharing. Um, and um, we did a, a, a study looking at people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and the fact that mm-hmm. it causes them to go without needed medications and care and specialist visits. And so there's just this giant body of evidence basically proving what is common sense, which is that if you make healthcare expensive at point of use, people will go without it. Um, and they go without <laughs> needing care. Um, yeah. And I don't know and why we need it. And that costs money. That costs right. so much more money down the line because then those COPD patients end up in your ICU instead of being able to regularly take their inhaler, not rationing it. Because I'm lucky that if I don't get my biologics, I go blind and then die kind of slowly. Like I've got a couple years. Well, I think the health economists would say, though, and there, there's some truth to this, um, that 
you know, that, that, that there's still savings, you know, which it's Ah. brutal logic, um, that, um, you know, just for example, um, there was one study that found that like helping people to quit smoking didn't actually save healthcare money that they, they actually wound up, you know, living longer (laughs) and using more healthcare. Um, and so, so, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, obviously I, I think it's absolutely absurd, but I, I, I think that they would rightly say that, it's still overall for society. It's it it still does cost money. People will use more healthcare, but that's fine. You know that's right. okay. <laughs> and right. um, and uh, like we're already spending all of that money. We just need to spend, spend it better. We need to spend it better. That's yeah. exactly right. And um, and the other thing the Rand people got wrong. And if this is too much in the weeds, I'm happy to. to no, no, please go. No, yeah. go go in. Go the, for it. So so what they showed. Long story short, they showed that. If you make healthcare free, people use more healthcare. Okay, we got it. That makes sense. Uh, right. Who who's surprised that that's going to happen? Um, but they but the, their estimates though are um, really big. That like the amount of healthcare people will use will soar um, with free healthcare. <laughs> and they're not. And, and and this is not just RAM, but it's another a, a larger sort of body of literature um, that not only we're talking about doctor visits or prescription drugs, but hospitalizations and ER visits and all mm-hmm. these things. And it's weird because you don't really see that playing out in act, in countries that actually do implement universal healthcare. Um, <laughs> and so there's, there's there's a sort of discordance between those predictions and reality. Um, and you saw yeah. this sort of most um, obvious or uh, sort of most sort of clearly play out last year when the Urban Institute came out with this study that single payer would cause healthcare costs to skyrocket overall for society. And it's because they thought mm-hmm. they estimated that healthcare utilization would skyrocket. What they failed to neglect, what they failed to address is that um, the reality is, is that there's only so many hospitals, there's only so many doctors, there's only so many nurse practitioners. Um, and what single payer financing does is it really helps ensure that healthcare goes to people who need it most. And that, mm-hmm. you know, when countries sort of um, uh, transition to single payer or universal healthcare systems, um, there's a small decrement in the amount of sort of unnecessary care that's being provided to people just because they're well off. Um, and it's a weird, slightly counter um, intuitive notion but we see that happen um when nhs was was implemented when the canadian medicare was passed when u.s medicare was passed uh, people get more health care um overall sometimes um there's a big increase among the people who really need it and there's very small offsets in hospital elective hospitalizations and doctor visits among mm-hmm. the well-off uh, which reflects the fact that you know doctors were probably providing some unnecessary care to well-off people to sort of keep busy. Right. Yeah, no, totally. Well, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up this uh, sort of overutilization uh, <laughs> suggestion, this <laughs> argument that seems to, uh, I, I wasn't aware of the like longer history of it too, but it, it um, makes sense. But uh, you had a you had a piece that I think we'll probably link to in the show notes for this um, in the Boston Review last year, mm-hmm. um, which was about this overutilization argument. Also the fact that sort of, as I understand it, the... Obama administration under their sort of famous like nudge philosophy um, (laughs) had really implemented the overutilization argument sort of at the core of some of what they were intending for the ACA. Um, And I'm just interested in, so it seems clearly three of the studies that um, you and your colleagues published last year actually have to do Mm -hmm. directly with sort of, I think I would say debunking Mm -hmm. this um, if I'm correct in assuming that. So I I wonder Mm -hmm. if we could like maybe talk about those um, and uh, what, what you think maybe specifically um, some of those findings indicate about how ridiculous this, how to put it. We always talk here about like, Oh yeah, well great. We'll just go get like recreational knee surgery (laughs) or something (laughs) with uh, Medicare for all, um, which, seems like patently absurd yeah chemo yes. for everyone whether you yes. need right. it or not exactly get my recreational Mandatory. chemo yeah just for fun because it's so <laughs> right. it's not horrible it's like a salad bar you're like up there you <laughs> right. might as well you know it's it's all included. you might as well keep on an extra serving of potatoes or or chemotherapy um, yeah exactly for, because it's free <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no i mean okay so yeah there's, there's a lot here to unpack so right <laughs> A, a couple of, and and I started getting to the sort of our findings from those studies last year, and I'll and I'll swing back to that in a second. But let sure. let, let me let me pivot to that Boston Review piece that that you mentioned, um, because it is it is true that the Obama administration basically 
totally adopted this overutilization thesis. Um, and not only them, but the sort of mainstream of health policy academia uh, as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, this was popularized most famously um, in uh, by Atul Gawande, um, the surgeon and New York um, uh, uh, New Yorker uh, columnist and researcher that that is, you know, I'm sure many of your viewers are um, familiar with. Uh, he wrote this article about how he went down to <laughs> the place in the United States that had the highest healthcare spending. Um, in Texas, and to sort of figure out what was going on. And basically, he, he sort of observed this culture of people using way too much health care and sort of the healthcare <laughs> sort of providers providing lots of excess care to make more money. Um, and that was ba- and, 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 and you know, that popularized and helped push forward this idea that the core problem of American healthcare costs are that people are using too much health care to, and, and that, that was the thesis of the article. Um, and without getting into all the details, um, you know, and p- part of that came about, um, because of the data sources that people used to use, they used to focus mm-hmm. just on Medicare databases, um, but the reality is, is that it conflicts very sort of obviously with a very basic fact, which is that Americans don't use too much healthcare. Um, if, you just, <laughs> if you just look at the, the, the OECD, you know, numbers in terms of doctor visits per year, you know, the amount of medications we use, the amount of hospital days we have, these very, very basic like parameters about a metrics of healthcare utilization, we don't use too much healthcare. It was a, simply <laughs> a false kind of argument. Um, at the same time, so really, you know, obviously we're just paying too much for the healthcare we're getting. I mean, that's the sort of right. obvious conclusion and UV Reinhardt kind of gets credit for that, that concept. Um, so, you know, but because this overutilization thesis was, you know, basically embraced by everyone apart from, mm-hmm. you know, us radicals and you know right. whoever else um <laughs> it was wound up being worked into like all of the healthcare policies of the last 10 years you know yeah. from high deductible healthcare plans right i mean the idea there is well if we're using too much healthcare let's give people skin in the game so they use less healthcare um, yeah. the aca's cadillac tax well that was designed to sort of get, you know decrease the generosity of healthcare plans insurance to have the same effect to, to sort of you know make people think more about the healthcare they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, accountable care organizations, uh, which are basically like HMOs, um, that we don't need to get into too much, but again, they're basically like HMOs, and they basically are designed to reduce healthcare spending by reducing utilization. Um, are another example, <laughs> workplace wellness programs. So, what's, yep. you know, why were workplace wellness programs in the Affordable Care Act? Uh, well, it's because the idea is is that people are using too much healthcare. So employers should incentivize healthy behaviors um, by sticks and carrots that are pretty creepy, in my opinion, putting all the <laughs> policy aside. <laughs> but um, even yes. putting aside the creepiness, the premise is is workers are using too much health care. If they would be healthier and act health and do more healthy stuff, um, we wouldn't use too much health care and health care costs would go down. Um, pay for perf- – I, mean, I, I could go on and on. Basically, right. a whole generation we wasted um, – policies designed to reduce healthcare utilization and healthcare utilization was never the problem to begin with. Oh, but look, look at all the business innovation inspired like Amcare or isn't Best Buy getting into the senior care market too. And actually, uh, as is pointed out at the very beginning of this article, um, Atul Gawande himself is now uh, the CEO of the like Amazon JP Morgan Chase Berkshire Hathaway Ah. uh, health venture. So yeah. It's, it's like all, he was born sense. for it. So fitting. <laughs> yeah. uh, he was back in the news. You know, that, his writing was back in the news this last two weeks. Oh, and this is the last thing I'll get to on this overutilization thesis because it does have to be debunked completely because it's been right. so pernicious. Um, for, uh, did either of you hear this story about this super utilizer study that came out like last week? Oh, God, no. I'm assuming no. I'm a super utilizer, though. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really offensive term. Um, yeah, but basically, it's like super predator or something. But it's yeah, sorry, I mean, it's an offensive term. It's, there was another article by Gawande on this issue um, where basically he went to Camden, New Jersey, where they had rolled out this new program to identify super utilizers, uh, people who use tons of health care, who got hospitalized a lot, you know, were sick um, and use a lot of health care in particular. And there were generally people who were very 
you know, living in social precarity, you know, um, who, who didn't have a lot of resources. And the whole idea was that this was driving up healthcare costs. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, 1% or 0.1% of people are <laughs> needing all this healthcare, that it's driving up healthcare costs. Um, and, you know, is there a way to sort of target resources to them to, to, to reduce their use of healthcare? Um, and that's the premise. So from a big picture perspective, again, it gets to this issue that the problem is overutilization. In this case, it was specific individuals. Um, and there's this really offensive artwork that was that was um, put in the in the um, um, the article, The New Yorker. They have a picture of a obese man mm. who is covered head to toe in bandages. So you can't even, you know, it's just all you can see is his eyes, like a bandage up like a mummy. And he, mm. he has a price tag around his head neck that says 3.5 million dollars oh, um yeah. oh, and cool. it's hard to imagine anything more patient blaming um than that you know that yeah. that like this is a burden uh, anyway it's 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 really really it really sounds like they're uh, gearing up for implementing some sort of uh, eugenics or euthanasia program with that argument <laughs> i mean I, I think that people you know the people who are implementing these programs you know i think are well-intentioned but yeah. But that being said, I, it does speak to this, you know, I think they're well-intentioned. They do want to help these individuals who, you know, but the premise is wrong. I mean, the premise is that, right. you know, healthcare utilization is the problem that we need to deal with. And if we don't reduce healthcare use, we're going to be in trouble. And anyway, the reason why it was in the news again last week is because, you know, this group published these very positive positive kinds of findings about how much money was saved, but they did a sort of randomized trial and they published the results last week or two weeks ago, I forget. And it didn't show actually any, any savings from, from this kind of uh, program <laughs> wow. aimed at reducing use. So anyway, that's a Surprise. very long winded sort of yeah. way to begin the discussion, but it's important to keep in mind that it's our healthcare use is not the problem. And uh, people have uh, made that case incorrectly for decades now. Um, so, but then I guess to get to the second part of the question, which is about what our study studies did, which, um, you know, we, so, so as I mentioned, um, the urban Institute this year, last year came out with this sort of study with this giant price tag for Medicare for all. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, right. but it basically said there was going to be a huge increase, not merely in federal tax spending. Like that's, that's going to be the case right. in any Medicare for all system. They're taking private and, you know, private payments, making them public. We agree on that, of course, but that there would actually be a giant soaring cost in total healthcare spending as a nation. Yeah, they said uh, Urban Institute said that it would uh, require an additional thirty-four trillion dollars in new federal <laughs> right. spending. So, right. yeah, and I think, yeah, or maybe yeah, and then a similar amount in, fe- in total national healthcare spending. Right, so, something like that. Yeah, something like that. <sighs> so, um, which is and, and they and and they assume that pe- that the healthcare utilization is going to rise, um, and that's why. Um, so, um, the reality is, is this is not what happened. So our work, um, to kind of wrap this up, we, we sort of said, this doesn't sound really quite right because, you know, um, other countries <laughs> that have universal systems like are less expensive than ours. So how, how do we kind of make yeah. sense of this? And, and so we looked at the examples of healthcare, the implementation of universal healthcare, um, uh, well, not fully universal, but the implementation of the Medicare Medicaid rollout in 1966 um, of the Affordable Care Act in 2014, and then we in a in a review article we looked at the art the 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 sort of results on utilization of the implementation of every universal coverage expansion we could sort of get our hands on. So we start with New, New Zealand in the 1930s, the UK in 1948. Mm. Canada, Sweden, et cetera. And we looked at, you know, what impact did the rollout of these programs have on utilization? And and, and sort of, this is what I mentioned sort of earlier. Um, what you see is, is that the society-wide increases in the amount of healthcare people use are pretty modest. And in some cases, they're flat. Um, and you, what you do see is some sort of offsets. You do see that, you know, after the, the you know, NHS is implemented, there was increases in use by most people, uh, particularly women who previously were not covered under the insurance schemes they had going on then and lower income folks. And there was very tiny decrements um, among the, the very well off. Um, and you saw something similar in Canada that there was increases in use by people with significant symptoms and illnesses, um, by middle and lower income people, um, very, very decrements among those who probably already had good coverage. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that gets back to what I was saying earlier that, 
you know, and, and, and that sounds a little counterintuitive and like the kind of argument you wouldn't want to make because it would kind of scare people away from Medicare for all. Um, but the reality is, is that it's not surprising. The total amount of healthcare we 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 sort of use as a society is mostly a supply side phenomenon, meaning mm. that you know, most of our hospitals tend to remain full. Most of doctors tend to remain busy. The right. amount of visits and hospitalizations and elective, at least elective hospitalizations that have mostly determined on the supply side. When you change the right. financing and you make healthcare free at point of use, you're not changing that. What you are changing is that healthcare is being directed to people on the basis of their needs and not on the basis of their means. Mm. And this is a very sort of I will tell you heterodox way to think about this, um, but I really think that it is borne out by by the studies. And if you decide after considering all that, okay, well, we we we're not we we want to increase healthcare for everybody in terms of total doctor visits a year or total you know knee surgeries. Well, then you need more orthopedic surgeons or you need more doctors or if you want people to spend more days per year in the hospital, you need more hospitals. But most of the problems we're dealing with. Um, in healthcare as a society, are, are less that we think there's not, the total amount of healthcare is insufficient. It's more that it's not going to people who need it, and yeah. a lot right. of unnecessary care is being provided to people who don't need it, who think they're benefiting from it, but they're not. And that what we really need to do is change the financing system to redistribute care on the basis of needs, not on the basis of just who has the most money. Um, so that's a long, you, you know, discussion and a lot of history and sort of policy in, in, in a short bit, but I think that's how the system works. And I think that's why you don't see these explosions in use, you know, that people like the urban Institute have predicted. Right. Yeah, totally. In history. I mean, it makes, it makes a lot more sense than the urban Institute's, uh, um, assertion, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, before we, we don't want to take up too much of your time because I'm sure you're busy, but, um, before we wrap out, is there anything else you want to just touch on before? No, I, th I think we've covered, we've covered a lot of, um, you know, policy and politics. Um, you know, I, I, I the only thing I would close with is I, I do think we are at a turning point. We talked about this earlier. I think we are at a turning point, um, on, on the provider side, on the physician side specifically. Um, and mm -hmm. I think in the coming weeks, um, there's going to be increasing um, awareness of the fact that physicians are really an ally in the fight for single payer and not an opponent. Well, that's fantastic to hear. I hope yeah. you're right. <laughs> I, have, I actually have one. Uh, I think, I, I mean, uh, most of Physicians I've talked to are, but they're uh, nervous about their institutions being upset for them speaking publicly. So. That's true. I think that chilling effect is very real. Yeah. So. Yep. But Artie, did you have a, a last thing you wanted to? Uh, yeah, I, I had um, one question and we can sort of, you know, elide the sort of uh, explicit electoral implications of this. I think partially <laughs> because most mostly what this uh, series that we're doing, I think, is uh in some ways about is to like try and really focus on the policy and the things that we need to advocate for regardless of who we're advocating to whether it's congress whether it's an executive uh whether it's like you know your mom your or, or institutions <laughs> like the ama right, right. um <laughs> I do just want to ask, though, considering that so at the beginning of the discussion, we did discuss um, how there's sort of a there's sort of a fallacy inherent in saying like, oh, well, you could have a single payer system with um, or not exactly. It wouldn't be a single payer system. You could have a multi payer system that has a robust public option and that that would that that doesn't kind of guarantee mm -hmm. uh, the sort of like protections that you would actually really see under a single payer system. Um, and so I wonder if you have any commentary let's say <laughs> on the value of a let's say hypothetical plan that would allow people to experience a public option for three years before starting a fight for single payer mm -hmm. <laughs> i well no i mean i'm happy to comment on that from a policy perspective um i i think there's th that that the political and policy logic of that approach is is um flawed um so First, from the, just from a purely political perspective, you know, anytime you um, give your opponents more time to sort of regroup, you Absolutely. may <laughs> find yourself, um, you know, being shot down before you even get, you know, get get, get started. Um, right. So um, I, I think there's a lot of some political danger in and even even putting aside, you know, a two step approach, even a long transition yeah. plan. Um, you're giving your opponents sort of time to regroup and to plan a counterattack before you've even given the population the benefits of the program. Right. So, right. Um, yeah. yeah, as so we were saying in the beginning of the episode, we already like got 
lost twice, you know? Right. So I think that's one thing. Number two, um, it's not necessary from a, just to focus on sort of an administrative kind of implementation perspective, it's certainly not necessary to have a long rollout. Um, you know, the NHS was passed in 1946, implemented in 1948. Medicare right. was <laughs> passed in 1965, implemented in 1966. Um, I can give other examples. Um, it's not yeah. as though you need some kind of complex multi-stage rollout um, in order to, well, to do it. And and the Jayapal bill itself has a very explicit two-year rollout Exactly. Period. Yeah, so. we, we, we support a two year rollout, even compared to a four, four year rollout. Um, yeah, um, as do you know, we <laughs> at, for, for those reasons. Yes. Yeah. Um, but then the third issue. So putting those two aside, the third thing, which I think is more addressing your specific question, um, which is, you know, how do, uh, how about not only, a, you know, put aside a four year transition, how about doing one thing like a public option and sort of using that as a launching pad to <laughs> right. yeah. to a single payer system in the future? That's a whole different ball of wax, uh, because I think there's a lot of reasons that that is, 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 a, is a bad idea, um, in addition to the, the first two reasons I mentioned. Um, and one of them is the fact that in private insurance companies are really smart and are very savvy, mm -hmm. and they know how to undercut the public systems. Um, so, for instance, we see this with Medicare and Medicare Advantage, yep. yeah, Medicare absolutely. Advantage plans. What do they do? They avoid the sicker patients. There's studies showing that sick patients are able to uh, wind up leaving Medicare Advantage once they get real sick and go to traditional Medicare. Yeah, like immediately, basically. Basically immediately, right? Yeah. Isn't it like 80% uh, within the first month or something? Something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, we so know that started. Medicare Advantage plans, like they upcode, they yeah. overbill, they so it cherry pick, they lemon drop. So we've actually seen... Um, you know, how this is playing out, right? Like you can view traditional Medicare as a public option and you can view Medicare Advantage as a private option. And that private option has been gaining steam year after year after year. Um, and the market share of Medicare Advantage is higher than it's ever been before. It's now about 30%. Um, so that's a good example of how the public option, which is basically traditional Medicare, is actually being outmaneuvered in front of our very noses yeah. by the private insurance companies that are gaining market share, taking up public revenue um, and undercutting the the sort of solvency of, of, of the program because they're actually more expensive. Um, so, you know, I worry a lot about those kinds of dynamics playing out yeah, um, I agree. when you implement a public option and want it to be a launching pad uh, to something else. You know, there were That's people um, in the 1960s who wanted to a wanted Medicare to be a public option instead of to be applied to everyone over 65. Um, and they were defeated. And thank goodness for that, because Medicare, despite all of its flaws, would even be far worse if that was the case. Oh, totally. I am so lucky to be on Medicare. And I wish everyone could even have it as it is now, which is horribly still lacking a lot of things like long-term care, vision, dental, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, the donut hole in part D. But even so, it's like... Yeah. I mean, also, I think... Uh, well, speaking probably for uh, all of us, including the panelists who are not here today, I'd say we basically who are we, very uh, jealous. <laughs> uh, I think we completely agree with you. And part of one of the reasons I wanted to ask specifically was because I think that uh, it, it to me personally, it seems absurd to say, especially the assertion that and I know that like, you know, this has been a this has been a talking point for especially like a lot of candidates like Pete Buttigieg or something like that saying like, oh, yeah, like we'll, we'll do a public option so that people get sort of get a taste. But then I think to see it come from, let's say, another candidate in their transition plan to Medicare for all as explicitly saying that like um, as though the two things would be comparable that you would that you the the public option would be getting a taste of Medicare for all mm -hmm. um, I think it's just but that's an, like fundamentally like a false choice right like, it's an important <laughs> I just think it's an important yeah. um, sort of fallacy actually right. and the whole like very el different. eliminating private insurance question the performativity of that in the debates has just been uh, like a, it is a false choice because there's yeah. like you have the difference between either adding another option which is just going to add like more paperwork and one more system and just increase the patchwork or you just have one simple thing that covers everybody yep. that is you know a universal program right. like medicare Right. Well, I mean, yeah, the and the public options are not going to be the same in terms of comprehensiveness. Um, and a lot of people who are not in the public option are going to still have inadequate insurance. Um, and then the finance, the, you know, the economics, which is sort of the most boring part of it, but it's important. 
the reality is, is that a public option is not going to produce the savings of a single payer system. So you're right. going to have a lot of the costs without the savings. And so what is the opposition going to do when that happens? They're going to say, look at this costly program. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's it, healthcare costs have actually risen in the last yep. two years. We can't afford to do this exactly. anymore because the number one biggest savings from help from single payer is those administrative and billing savings. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a you know, study last week, annals of internal medicine, um, that found that, you know, we spend about a third of every healthcare dollar in the United States um, uh, going towards administration and billing. And that adds up to about $812 billion a year. Um, and that's mm. double the portion of our healthcare spending um, going towards that as Canada, right? And so yeah. <laughs> to really get those savings, which adds up to about $600 billion a year, you do need single payer. Um, if yeah. you would j- just reach universal coverage and just do it by giving the you know the private insurance industry money to do it, it would be really, really expensive and people would push back against it and push back against the, the tax increases. So that's a yeah. sort of fourth reason why it matters. Thank you so much for coming on today. This has been a fantastic discussion and I, I think our audience is going to be really excited. Um, And if you want to learn more about those two studies, we did cover the VA study and the spending study, uh, I think, on episode 115. Uh, So we can link to that one, too. Um, And thank you again for uh, sending us that study. We appreciated reading it. It was really fun. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. This was a really interesting discussion. No, I really appreciate it. And um, thank you for all of the work that you've been doing over these years, um, especially also PNHP is one of our favorite uh, organizations. So it's it's an honor to have you on. It's a big movement and I'm, you know, one of many people that's to be a part of it. And uh, hopefully we will have some success soon. I hope so. Yes, we needed it yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Adam, thank you so much. And um, uh, we will uh, hopefully have you back sometime in the future. If you don't, you know, if you ever have the time. I'd be happy to talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Medicare for All Week from the Deaf Panel. Subscribe wherever podcasts are distributed to hear a brand new interview on single-payer healthcare every day until the 11th of February. And support us at patreon.com slash deafpanelpod for patron-only episodes, and to help us make series like Medicare for All Week possible. We are entirely listener-supported and extremely lacking in quality healthcare. Goodbye for now. Until next time, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod.